HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Artifact Coffee and by the Indigo Road Restaurant and Consulting Group. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. listening to Meant to be Eaten. I'm Coral, the show's producer, in for Andrea this week. And joining me today is JT, head chef at Okonomi in East Williamsburg. Okonomi delicately toes the line between convention and craze, serving traditional Japanese breakfast, Ichiju Sansai by day, and not-so-traditional ramens by night. The methods of handling and treating ingredients are from Japan, while the ingredients themselves are local, the very same carrots you may have picked up last Wednesday in Union Square. Okonomi redefines and revisions what tradition and authenticity truly represent, and I'm pleased it's brought JT here on the show. Hello, and thank you. <laughs> so what does a traditional Japanese <coughs> breakfast consist of? Um, so Ichiju Sansai itself is basically one soup. Uh, rice always comes with everything, pickles, and then three sides. So that's the san, Sansai part, or Ichiju is one soup, three sides. Um, the sides could vary all the time. For instance, we do a baked tamagayaki, so kind of like an egg omelet. Uh, we do a few tweaks because we don't have gas, so we cook it differently. Uh, roasted fish, as well as, um, well, it, the, the third part kind of changes the most. Uh, the most common one is like a blanched vegetable with like a tofu dressing. And is there a specific philosophy behind its creation and conception? So, without getting too crazy and deep into it, um, it's it comes from a bunch of, or historically I would say it comes from, comes from, uh, sorry, history. Um, soup is always good to have, nutritious, easy to make, and a lot of your waste or byproducts can make a really delicious soup. So that is called motanai. Uh, it's a Buddhist philosophy about like minimizing your waste or not wasting anything, as well as appreciating the product indirectly. Um, well, not indirectly, but that also sounds really bad. Uh, but basically, you you butcher your fish and you still have all these bones left. And for depending on the fish, let's say. Uh, bluefish, since we serve that a lot, there's probably a good 30% of the fish by weight you could throw out, like the head, uh, all the organs, bones. But in reality, the head and bones, you could just roast and make a nice nice stock out of it. Uh, if 
it's really, really awesome for like miso soup, for instance. And then different, different fish will provide different flavors. Um, pickles are always, almost always in... <clears throat> pickles are pretty much in every single meal, some, some way. Uh, throughout the world, it's, what's it, like 50% of food is easily fermented, if not more than probably in 70 reality. But pickling is a good way to preserve things and also kind of boost the flavor of all the food in general. Uh, and then the last, the blanched veg is more kind of more like a balanced, nutritious meal. You could do, doesn't necessarily have to be like a blanched green veg. It could be, you know, green beans. It could be a root veg. It could literally be anything. It just, you want to have, let's say, so my mom has this thing where she likes to have multiple colored vegetables because she feels like it's, it's more nutritious that way. I don't know how true that is or not. It provides like different vitamins, different nutrients, which I guess, and looks prettier. Yeah, and so at nighttime, the shop actually turns into a ramen shop as well. And what kinds of ramen do you sh- do you serve? So part of the whole motonai thing is we take the fish bones, blend um, the chicken, make the broth for the nighttime. And a lot of the stuff, not a lot, but some of the stuff gets repurposed. Uh, we serve it Mazaman style. Uh, so it's basically a thicker noodle. Still has a nice chew, uh, thanks to like the kansui, which is the alkaline alkalinity. Uh, more pasta-ish, so... One of our most popular ones is a bacon egg uh, mazamin. It's kind of like a spin on a carbonara. And then we do the more ramen style, which is with broth. Uh, we, we specialize in the seafood, so everything has some kind of seafood component to it. And at this, in the same vein of the motanai, a lot of like tuna, like the belly fins and the bones are just straight up thrown out. We actually take that, roast it, uh, and cook it at a boil so all the flavors and fat emulsifies in. So can you talk a little little bit more about the philosophy and how do you choose ingredients you cook with and where do you source them from? So the, for me, the basis of uh, the Japanese cooking philosophy is seasonal and regional, as well as um, not necessarily simple, saying simple flavors sounds bad also, but more cleanliness and what the, the ingredient has to offer naturally. Um, for instance, sorry, this is going to be a different tangent really quick. But if you look at a lot of traditional kaiseki cuisines, they actually don't add much salt or sugar or any at all, actually. If you add salt, well, in Western cuisine, it brings out like a certain flavor. It brings out more of like, oh, if you add salt to asparagus, asparagus will taste more like asparagus to a certain point. But then all the more subtle flavors will be muted because that stronger flavor covers everything else up. And they, they will want you to be able to taste pretty much everything. Um, so what was it back to? Where you're sourcing ingredients. <laughs> Oh, so, all right. So the other part is that the whole cuisine is based on seasonality and locality. It's throughout, throughout the whole, shit, how do I go about this now? Am I allowed to say that? Okay, I say shit. (laughs) (laughs) So from the, we get all our stuff, all the seafoods from the Atlantic Ocean. Once in a while we do get stuff from Pacific Northwest, mainly salmon, uh, just super abundant. And they, so it's, you know, we don't feel as guilty about it. But we go as far south as maybe the Carolinas and then into Canada, but I'm not really sure the geography of Canada, so I can't really tell you how far it goes. Uh, but we try to stick to that. And then land-wise, it's maybe we go up as far as Maine, uh, Pennsylvania as well. But we get as much of our stuff as possible um, closer to here. So we spend a lot of time at the market and then just a lot of farmers and uh, companies that help smaller farms ship together. So wouldn't using 
locally sourced ingredients kind of limit your ability to, to be wholly Japanese or authentic? Because what if in you know some hypothetical uh, situation or world, you could get all your ingredients from Japan and have radish from Japan and fish from Japan, and then would, would that experience prove to be more authentic than the other? So I could see both sides to this, this argument. For me personally, I feel that it's that's kind of not cheating necessarily, but I'd rather follow the overall guideline versus then, oh, I need to, for this dish, I need this specifically and this other, you know, vegetables specifically. It, it kind of, it kind of is like a, what's that, the, the ship of thesis? It's like, is it, is it going to be the same if I use different ingredients? I can make uh, a braised dish instead of using, you know, let's say, buri or hamachi, for instance. I use bluefish, which is only local to here, or not local, but in Atlantic. Uh, it's a little bit more oily. It's it's the same size about fattiness as well. But is it if I follow the same you know steps? If I take the same procedures, is it is it actually any less of a meal also? And that's like a it's more of a philosophical question. So it's you're able to remain true to the philosophy and not necessarily the flavor. I mean, it wouldn't taste the same exactly, but it still follows the same guidelines or. Yeah, I think so. And now that, I guess, everything could sh is literally flown, for instance, uh, uni is flown from Maine to Japan, and then if nobody buys it, they'll fly back, and it'll be still pristine quality, probably better than a lot of, like, the middle-tier sushi restaurants would get anyway. So that kind of that kind of muddles the whole situation, um, thanks to globalization. Hmm. Okay, so um, actually... An interesting note about the Okonomi team is that most of it, if not all of the team, is not Japanese. And how do you, is it possible to learn the subtle nuances of another's culture or tradition, do you think? Uh, I'm going to have to say yes to say mountain skin. <laughs> um, but like I said, it's, it's understanding or trying to figure out and you want to kind of understand the philosophy behind, let's say, the cooking methods and how that came about and why that came about. And it's, for me, it's like, you have to learn. Basically, you have to learn, you have to appreciate it. Like, if you, you can't just pick up a recipe like, oh, I have sake, mirror, and soy sauce, it's gonna be a Japanese dish. That's kinda, kinda bogus. So, do you feel like you get kind of a, a unique point of view as someone who's not Japanese, making Japanese food, or do you feel like that hinders you? So not, actually, it's a funny thing. I thought about this, um, sometimes I lay, lay in bed at night, and I'm like, shit, dude, I'm running a Japanese restaurant, <laughs> and I'm not a Japanese dude. Um, I'm Taiwanese, so there's actually a, lot, a ton of Japanese influence in Taiwan. Uh, they're colonized back in the day. My grandparents uh, both speak Japanese pretty, pretty well. I can't say fluently, because I, I don't know how well they speak, because I can't speak that well myself. <laughs> but... Um, I feel like not being Japanese, I have a certain amount of liberty. Uh, I could break out of the mold without being chastised for it. Because nobody's like, oh, he's a Japanese dude and he's doing something else. And it's like, that's not how it is. Whereas for me, I could change a dish and be like, oh, he's not Japanese, so it doesn't really doesn't matter as much. And at the same time, it's kind of a... What, what kind of bites at me sometimes 
or nips at me is people like, oh man, this food's super good and all that. But then I'm curious, uh, from Japanese people like, oh man, this is crazy good and all this. But I'm curious if, if, uh, if it's because they're like, oh man, somebody else is now Japanese and making food to a certain quality and it's impressive. And it's kind of like a, kind of, kind of hard to sleep sometimes. No, I'm kidding. You <laughs> <laughs> sleep okay. So do you think there runs the risk of ethnic tourism and food? I mean, a, a lot of food now kind of depends on globalization or the cross-cultural blends of techniques or ingredients. And, and so you were saying that being as an outsider looking in, you're, you're kind of given this unique freedom. But I mean, is it just because of the, the lower standard? I think, <laughs> I think let's say I look at a, a dish, for instance. Um, Ayamono is a kind of like a, basically a dress dish. I, there's very specific patterns people will follow, and if they're raised a certain way, they'll use specific things. But for me, in my brain, it's, I don't have to view it as a specific thing. I don't have like a memory linked to it. Uh, so for instance, okara is the leftover making tofu, and they'll, you know, uh, you can do like to say green bean okara. So you take the leftover making tofu, or soy milk, sorry, not tofu, uh, soy milk, and then you toss it, you'll toss the green beans in there, and, and season and everything. Uh, almond milk isn't, well, sorry, wasn't a big thing in Japan. But for instance, we can make almond milk here. And then I'm like, oh, someone's like, oh, wait, why don't you just use the, you know, you could do the same exact thing, just a totally different ingredient. And then most people won't have that connection. Or like, I'll add in shredded bits of mushroom or something. It's, it's I, I don't have that preconceived notion of how a dish should be. So there's more mobility in that area. So you were saying that there's a lot of Japanese influence in Taiwan. Do you feel like there are certain dishes you grew up um, eating that, I don't know, may have given you a, a better lens into Japanese cuisine and flavors? Or are you also coming into it kind of blind? So there's actually a lot of, a lot of similarities to begin with. Um, I don't want to say Japanese food is under-seasoned. It's under-seasoned by Western standards, like the traditionally. But in Taiwan too, it's like things aren't salted very heavily. Uh, you don't use a ton of soy sauce in something. But I remember specifically there's, so I was raised basically eating Japanese curry. I never thought it as specifically all oh, this Japanese curry. Just this is what my mom makes. And then one day, I think it was late high school, early college, and someone's like, "Oh, let's go get some curry." I'm like, "Oh, sweet, I love curry." <laughs> And then we go to the Indian restaurant, and I'm like, wait, they have curry here, that's interesting. <laughs> and then it comes out, it's like more like, you know, more like watery, soupy. It's not, not that really like cornstarch thickened uh, curry that I'd expect. And kind of was like, wait a second, like, I had to go home, I did some, did some <laughs> homework, I'm like, oh shit, this is where curry comes from. And uh, it's, it kind of woke me up. I was like, oh shit, I'm kind of ignorant actually. But I mean, I feel that it's like, good thing because then kind of more introspective I realized oh I could learn about much more stuff I don't have to just be stuck in my own shell yeah I experience something like that quite often is where I a lot of friends will recommend oh let's go get Chinese food right there's a Chinese food uh, restaurant that I really want to take you to and then we go and it, it kind of is a lose-lose situation because either it has you know like Chinese chicken salad on the menu or chicken feet and one of us feels uncomfortable and 
how do you kind of navigate those situations? Well, first, what, what is Chinese chicken salad? Ex- exactly, right? But it's like, it's a thing. There's like a salad section on a lot of Chinese restaurants or Chinese American restaurants. It's like Napa cabbage. Is it like shredded, like shredded chicken, like poached or bland, or steamed chicken yep. and shredded? Mm-hmm. Some oh, the the one ton strips. Oh yeah, those are super <laughs> like those, super Western. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, like, and those dishes, they, they kind of have come to represent a third hybrid culture, right? Like Chinese American food, like chop suey or orange chicken or all those things, which people take as Chinese food, and. I mean, there, there, there's something to be said about that. I think it's a blend too. of like, a blend of Chinese cuisines because there's so many different. I want to say peoples, but I might get killed by the PRC. <laughs> um, there's so many different people that have different cuisines, and once they come to the U.S., they kind of, they kind of drift together because this way they feel safest. But their cuisines could be completely different, and if they're working in the same restaurant, at some point it'll kind of merge together, or come closer together and then whoever's buying it will have the kind of like you said like the third hybrid essentially it's not it's not like oh this is all from you know Sichuan this is all Yunnan it's it's just whatever people want it to be these days or their idea what it is right and it almost feels like a lot of those dishes are kind of dumbed down or adapted to western tastes and do you think that's a valid criticism or I wouldn't say dumbed down, but it's definitely adapted. It's it's a smart move. Like, why would you... You can't survive yourself food that nobody wants to buy. Like, I want to... I wish there was, like, a really good stinky tofu restaurant or something. <laughs> or, like, even, like, a stand. But you probably won't make a ton of money, and you probably get a shitload of complaints from people. <laughs> this is rotten. This is bad. So I'm actually talking to JT, who's the head chef at Okonomi here in East Williamsburg. Um, and we are going to keep talking about cross-culturalism and Chinese chicken salad after the break. Is that where we are? This episode is presented by Artifact Coffee, serving food and drink to fuel body and soul. Brought to you by the team behind Woodbury Kitchen, Artifact Coffee is located in the restored Union Mills complex. They source their beans from Counterculture in Raleigh, and with help from partners like Great Kids Farm, Black Rock Orchard, and Oasis Creamery, they serve food that is fresh, local, and handcrafted, all day, every day. This episode is also presented by the Indigo Road Restaurant and Consulting Group. The Indigo Road was founded in Charleston, South Carolina in 2009 by managing partner Steve Palmer. It has since grown to include 16 restaurants in the Carolinas, Georgia, and Tennessee, and it's still growing. Several projects are currently in the works, including Donetto and Atlanta. But the Indigo Road is more than its restaurants. Steve Palmer maintains the philosophy that great service starts with well-cared-for employees. He believes in promoting from within, creating new opportunities for his staff, and developing a strong company culture. As culinary and industry leaders, the Indigo Road also specializes in restaurant and hotel consulting services, providing customized solutions to each. Learn more at indigoroad.com. 
And we're back. Um, I'm here with JT, head chef at Okonomi in East Williamsburg. And we were just talking about this kind of third hybrid cuisine that happens with Chinese-American takeout, like General So's chicken and chop suey. And at night, so Okonomi actually turns into a ramen shop and they have, you know, a lot more... I'd say maybe Western ingredients or Western styles of ramen. One of them is the bacon and egg ramen, which made famous by Master of None. And do you think there's a kind of adaptation or avoidance that happens with the bacon and egg ramen as well? It's it's definitely an adaptation. Like I said, you you want to. A lot of people are proud of their uh, heritage and want to bring out a, a dish, or I mean, they want to you know bring out the entire restaurant basically. Like, oh, this is my this is where I'm from. This is where we, we serve, but. People are kind of afraid of change, or a lot of people are afraid of new, you know, new taste, for instance. And this, these adaptations kind of essentially help people get into something else. It's like people are more willing to take the baby steps. And then once they kind of take that, they're like, oh, this is actually pretty good. They go a few times, they talk a little bit more. Once the education then picks up as well, and then before you know it, they're like, oh, doing homework. Like, oh, this is, you know, this dish comes from here. They use this traditionally in this way. And then say they'll look online like oh there's a class on how to you know cut sashimi for instance and then it just escalates in a positive way and a lot of people like to you know kind of like stomp down like oh this is a crappy takeout spot where they serve general sales or something but it's it's everybody kind of has their own safe spot it's they you you want them to, you know, get more into the authenticity of something, which I also hate as a word. Well, I don't hate it. It's, it's kind of, kind of annoying. Um, but you, I feel like people should let, you know, other people enjoy what they like. It's not harming anybody that much, and it'll it'll kind of help push them towards what certain people consider as, you know, the real, you know, Chinese cuisine, for instance. And it's. It's how it should be, dude. It's nobody. Nobody um, picks up an entire cuisine in one day. <laughs> in one bite. Yeah. Th- there's a similar criticism, or I guess the reason that there's this huge mysticism surrounding um, Japanese cuisine is that there's really no definitive guide to Japanese cooking since that one book we were talking about, um, like the art of simple cooking, right? And so, do you think Japanese chefs are hesitant <clears throat> to provide a new? guide or is it is it just kind of the way the tradition is where it's about perfecting a certain method or perfecting a certain recipe and it's less about innovation it's more just i don't know so i'm gonna say this as someone that's completely outside <laughs> of <all the> circles <laughs> oh man I'm gonna, I'm gonna get like killed today <laughs> <laughs> once you step outside the studio yeah. um this window bulletproof <laughs> um but so the chef from narasawa there's some article that came out maybe a few months ago, he's talking about how Japanese cuisine hasn't really progressed. Uh, I mean, it's progressed in, like, the details. Like, everything's gotten better, but nothing has... There has been no real revolution or improvement. Um, if you go pretty much anywhere in Europe, for instance, you go in the kitchen, there's always at least one or two Japanese people working there. And usually what happens is they learn from that person, whoever the chef is there, and they go back to Japan, then they open their own spot. But they almost essentially follow the the direction to a T. Uh, this, this person I know, I'm not going to write her out. <laughs> but we were joking one day. Well, not well, kind of serious, half joking. But she said basically, Japanese and Taiwanese people also 
uh, really good at taking something and developing it and making it better and better, but we're not necessarily the best at you know brand new inventions or creativity, which I also kind of disagree on sometimes. But it's a it's a super valid point. And so, in addition to the breakfast and ramen services, there are also those weekly tasting events that you host. And what do you think those tasting events convey that breakfast and ramen can't? You're talking about innovation and maybe breaking outside the mold for a little bit. And yeah, what do those events do for you? So, the breakfast basically is is um, bringing uh, Japanese philosophy into New York. The ramen is kind of a kind of a mixed spin. Um, it's kind of showcase more local seafood more than actual ramen itself and then the tasting menu is more of a conglomerate of all that plus being in New York which is already home to so many so many different cultures so it's not just it's it's based of you know Japanese uh, cooking philosophy but also what we pick up from being in New York like every all the restaurants you visit all the food trends all the good ingredients it's it's much more freedom it kind of toes the line between is this some dishes are like is this Japanese is this not Japanese, but at the same time like kaiseki itself, uh, the sake style, the hot cuisine, kind of influenced so many tasting menus to begin with in the world, and that's one of the current trends. So it's it's not. Kind of lost myself, start start ranting too much, <laughs> but it's not. Uh, not as hard and fast about, oh this is a kaiseki meal. And plus, also, there's something else called the cha kaiseki, which is a tea-style um, kaiseki meal. It's it's um, rooted more in like a Buddhist and humble and tea origins. It's not about oh, what's the you know what can I import that's the most expensive and crazy flavorful thing. It's more about presenting a certain level of hospitality, uh, learning what the guest wants, and then you pre- present that food like oh you like eating this thing, so I'm gonna serve this. Um, and it's it just being like a good host basically I feel like a lot of Okonomi's press or popularity stems from you know it's Instagram ability or how pretty it looks on the plate and what how do you think that affects the experience it definitely draws in it draws in a crowd which is good but a lot of people I feel like are just in it not necessarily just for Instagram which kind of some people are but the whole instant gratification thing, people go there or they go out, they just want to eat. They want to get the food right away and eat or they want to take a nice picture, but they kind of they kind of miss out on the entire experience. It's like we go traveling to a, you know, a different country and you spend your entire time taking you know, photos. You're going to miss that just that feeling of being there because you're already stuck in, oh, how do I fit this lovely picture in the fucking rectangle? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I got to stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, so we provide, we try to provide, you know, a remotely healthy meal. And by remotely, it's actually probably really, really healthy. We don't use much oil. Uh, a lot of it's just natural fish oil, no butter. But they miss out on the like the hospitality side. It's not very tangible. It's a bit harder from uh, due to language barriers. But regardless, it's we're not playing. We're playing music at a certain BPM, so it's not crazy. It's not too slow. You're not gonna fall asleep. You're not gonna have a heart attack. And we, we just treat everybody uh, with straight up you know respect, and then we kind of hope they, and most of the time they always send it back as well. So it provides like a super nice serene environment. During the weekdays, a lot of people come by themselves, just like have a nice meal, hang out. They're not they're not getting crushed by you know they just 
drop all that external work pressure they have or whatever whatever else is going on in their life that's kind of you know dragging them down and it's just sitting there enjoying the meal enjoying the environment um, and I feel like a lot of people don't understand the experience aspect of just eating in general like people can see that oh they go to a super high restaurant they're gonna get good service even though they don't understand what that means and then they understand also they'll go to McDonald's for instance and they'll get you know to get whatever food and then a certain type of experience but in the middle ground people can't really comprehend like oh this this kind of seems expensive it's, and I feel like it's they just can't grasp like if you make a if a server makes an error, it's something that, oh shit, we had a bad service today. It's super noticeable. But if someone does something perfectly fine, like let's say your server's 100%, no one, most people don't really notice that because it's it's not breaking the system. I don't, I don't know how to explain that. It's it's kind of like a dehumanized service almost. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like they, they feel like they treat like that, but it's also... They're just not aware, they're not appreciating and aware of their current, uh, current ex experience, I guess. Which is also super, super Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, with, with something like the Japanese breakfast, where they've seen these photos on Instagram, and pretty much all photos look pretty identical, they kind of come exper or expecting the same experience every time, and is that not the desired experience you want them to have? I mostly just want people to come in and have a good time. Not, or at least, be content. Uh, I feel like being content is kind of spun a different way these days versus being happy. Like, being happy is, like, you know, super positive. But being content is, I feel, is more as, like, like, being happy about how everything is or appreciating that you're alive and your life is going this way. Bad things happen, but you just learn from that. Uh, I, I just, yeah. Yeah, I, I just think there's this kind of misconception with Japanese uh, food or sushi or something that it's all about perfection, like almost inhuman perfection and consistency every single time. And it, it does that. Is that something you strive for as well? I feel like that's why a lot of, aside from um, having labor force issue, <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean us, I mean in Japan, sorry. <laughs> but us also. Uh, like, if you look at a lot, a lot of shops, they'll have, like, a ramen shops have, like, you know, a vending machine booth where you, you pick it out. Uh, you got a ticket, you had to take it in, and that's it. But then if you look at all the higher-end places, like, you know, any places omakase, even though it's not a ton of people working, there's a lot more of that hospitality aspect. Uh, I remember doing, like, kaiseki meals, for instance, and then, we're you know, we finish eating, we're leaving, but then the... The staff would kind of like follow us out and like we walked pretty much like you know 40 50 feet and they're still following us and waving <laughs> goodbye and i'm like oh man it's like i can't tell it's awkward or nice but i felt it was, it was like a really nice gesture basically we'll have to start doing that at the, <laughs> the restaurant <laughs> follow people home <laughs> and actually speaking of um so okonomi is situated in williamsburg which is a neighborhood that's long been pretty settled or comfortable with its gentrified status and have you noticed any difference in the maybe the customers it attracts or the, the type of cultures that the, the community it fosters uh, we get we get a pretty diverse crowd our original goal is kind of just to be a neighborhood restaurant you know provide for neighborhood but we kind of got too 
too popular, I guess. And then, so we become more of a destination. People, you know, take Ubers all the time. They're visiting from wherever. We also get a lot of people that kind of fly straight in from Japan and just like, oh, we just came from Japan. And I'm like, in my head, I'm kind of like, what are you guys? You guys came all over from Japan. You're gonna eat a similar meal, but it's it's very very heartwarming though at the same time. And it's, I'm I'm actually, no matter how much sometimes like man, you guys should eat somewhere else, but it's it it's feel it feels good basically. Like people people want to show us their love, basically or appreciation, and then so we want to show our love back to them. The neighborhood itself has changed quite a bit, at least in the past ten years. Like ten years is is significant change. <clears throat> uh, but a lot of the it hasn't changed that much in our in our side of the Bikili, whereas on Bedford there's maybe three three bars that are the same that have been there forever. Um, every other bar like has just basically shut down, uh, replaced by let's say was that Star no Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> so replaced by Kill I think. Or there's like a Uniqlo pop up or something, but Whole Foods, um, Dwayne Reed, Apple Store. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I don't walk by there. Apple yeah. Store, yeah. So in addition to the ramen and the breakfast and the tasting, there's also the new fish market. And so, what what can people get at the fish market, and what who's your target customer? So the fish, it it kind of all stems from Yuji, who's the the mastermind behind all these things. Um, he used to be a seafood uh, purveyor, and he wanted people to actually. He, he saw so much waste in um, the fishing industry here. He wanted kind of, kind of like a cut down on waste, but also show people that seafood is actually still amazing. Um, so eventually, we opened the fish market, Osakana. Uh, it's it kind of follows in the same vein as the other spots. It's it's just about treating your product with care, like actual, like true, like people always say, oh, this farm table, this is, you know, sustainable. But it's more about how you handle, the, how each person like working handles uh, whatever the product is. And I feel like that's, and that's how, you know, if you go to Skiji in Japan, all the fish there is not only pristine because people send their best stuff there, but everybody there takes the best care of what, you know, they're not like carrying the fish in the center. So the head and tail kind of flop down and make like a, frowny face I guess <laughs> like that just that just tears up the meat and just knowing it just caring about your product and you have to understand that it's sure you could catch you know 100 fish and sell it and you could catch you know, for whatever and do whatever to it or you could catch one fish and you'll sell for way less but it's more of like a pride thing like I want I want my own thing to be good and I think the pride is is a pretty huge factor Sorry, that's kind of a weird rant. <laughs> so today I've been speaking with JT, who's the head chef at Okonomi in East Williamsburg, um, which serves traditional Japanese breakfast in the morning and ramen, or more hype ramen at night. And remember, whether it's chicken feet or bacon and egg ramen, it's meant to be eaten. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.